Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Hey, this is a really good day today, but um, I want you to turn out, your, turn, out turn in <laughs> your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. So we are right here at the crescendo of finishing up our journey through the Gospel of Mark. Mark has a story to tell. He's got a specific way of doing it. He's got an audience. He's got some points that he's trying to make. And right here in chapter 15, I I kid you not, it comes to a crescendo in a way that is shocking. It's it's, um, astounding, I think. It's very dramatic. And... um, I, th- I think that, that this is what's the hardest thing about it to absorb, right? As we walk through this, it's going to be really easy to go, oh, those people. And all along, it's been Mark's point. It's been his tactic. And it's been the truth that all these characters that we get to see, that we get uh, to, to be drawn in with, that we, he, he paints great pictures of all these people and what they're doing. And he gives just enough detail to create a scene and a scenario. All these people should be able to find us in, in, in all these people, OK? The, the, these are us. And today, the, scene, the scene and the, this dramatic part of the scene, it's, um, it's shocking, I, I, I think, regarding that. So it will be easy to get today to go, ah, oh, not me. Just kind of like Peter. It'll be really easy to do that. But it comes to um, a crescendo today. And then next week, then, is uh, Resurrection Sunday. And we're going to be at chapter 16. And so that's the zenith. That's where everything is headed. That's, what he, that's the, the greatest story ever told. That's what he really wants us to know and understand. But you have to know this, OK? So he draws us into this intimate scene first. And next week, we, we get to discuss, then, the resurrection. And it kind of unfolds a little differently than you might think, too, in the Gospel of Mark. So turn it to, uh, to Mark into chapter 15. And um, all right, you guys, you got your Bible? All right, so they're right there. They're under, you can get it. Come on, let's go. Sitting here in the front, look, there you go. You're like sitting there twiddling your thumbs. I mean, what are you doing? Come on. I'll teach you. See, he's got his Bible out. It's all ready. He's on his phone. I don't think he's on Facebook. He's got the Bible. Okay, that's good. I'm just not letting you get away. All right. So, so I love that you guys are sitting up front. You probably don't love it. I really like it, you guys. Okay? Now, chapter 15, Go scoot down to verse uh, 16. Right? We'll start at verse 16. So the soldiers led him, that's Jesus, into the palace that is the governor's residence. So whenever those little brackets around things, that's like commentary. You know, it's Mark describing, you know, the palace and what it's all about, right? And called together the whole cohort. So that's a whole bunch of soldiers, all, everybody involved there, right? They put a purple cloak on him. And after braiding a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And I'm sure that wasn't like just gentle. 
Verse 18, they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. And then they knelt down and paid homage to him. And when they had finished mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put his own clothes back on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. In verse 21, the soldiers forced a passerby to carry his cross. Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's an amazing detail. They brought Jesus to, you know, so that, that's just a scene. So then it says, they brought Jesus in verse 22 to a place called Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh. It's really bitter and sour. It's like vinegar. But he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, throwing dice for them to decide what each would take. Verse 25, it was 9 o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription uh, of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two outlaws with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by defamed him, shaking their heads and saying, aha, you who can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, even the chief priests, together with the experts in the law, were mocking him among themselves. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also spoke abusively to him. So man, this is, this is a scene, isn't it? This is crazy. The tension of the Passion Week in these scenes is just, it's built to a boiling point, and it happens right here. It's boiling. The last time we looked at um, Jesus' hearing before Pilate, that was last week, right? Where the people rejected uh, his desire to release Jesus, so Pilate wanted to release Jesus because he did not want to do what the chief priests wanted. You remember that? Instead, the people choose the violent insurrectionist Barabbas, who uh, we learned um, represented what Israel had become and represents us. We're Barabbas. So now we find ourselves in the midst of unrestrained evil. So Jesus is no one giving him comfort to ease his pain. He's got nobody around him. Everything has come full circle, all right? This is the most profound injustice. This is the most dramatic thing. It's an act so remarkable. It's actually so outrageous that when you stop and when you really consider what's happening here, what took place, you have to ask, why? Why does this happen? Does it have to happen like this, actually? Did it Did it even have to happen? I mean, God, if he can do everything and anything and anything he wants in any way that he wants... Couldn't he have devised another way? 
What does it mean for us? Why do we study it? I want to know that. Why do we study this? Why do we consider it? Why do we remember it? Does it really have relevance to us in 2019 in this enlightened postmodern age, right? Where information is at our fingertips. Billions of bits of information just can come and go, and communication, and you can talk to somebody right now, clear across the country, clear across the world. What's this got to do with me? What influence does this have when there are products to be developed? Because I'm a software engineer. Where business plans need to be executed, where college educations need to be planned for, where I, I got to study for tests. I'm trying to focus on, you know, just getting some papers done, where tournaments are being played. What's it got to do with this? You know, and I'm enjoying all this kind of stuff. Concerts are to be performed. Playoffs are happening right now. Families to be cared for, careers, dreams are supposed to be, you know, I'm exploring dreams right now. I'm, I'm, I'm doing some crazy stuff. I got to pay bills. What's this got to do with this? And the life that I'm living right now, what's this got to do with me? Why should we care what happened to this nonviolent revolutionary calling himself a king yet being clandestinely tried and brutally killed on a Roman cross? Why are we talking about this today in church? What's it got to do with anything? I mean, I got invited today and wow. I mean, this is kind of ugly. Well, this is boiling point that's taken place. And now all Humanity is brought together to put Christ on the cross. So let's find out. Look at verse 16. The soldiers led him to the place that is the governor's residence and called together the whole cohort. And then look what they do. The first thing to note, all right, as, they, as, as these Roman soldiers bit a mock beat, spit, you know, and, and actually mimic the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the elders, the experts in the law, all those people. The Roman soldiers are actually mimicking those guys in this scene right here, right? Through verse 20. But the first thing to note is that at this point in the drama, the Sanhedrin, that's all those people, right? The high priests, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, they lose their voice right here. Mark decides you don't get to talk. <laughs> he takes their voice away. That's significant. You learned back in chapter 14, all right, and we were there just a little bit, um, uh, just a little bit ago, but back in chapter 14, Mark quotes the Sanhedrin, and they say, you've heard the blasphemy, what's your verdict? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to strike him with their fists, saying, prophecy... The guards also took him and beat him. So that's what these guys do. These are the church people. <laughs> Man, from this point, Mark records their action, but he, he gives them no words. They have no voice in the story. And I think Mark has taken away their voice because the limits of their power have been reached. And they don't get a talk. <laughs> the denial was was then joined by the crowds of, um, in other words, they have 
they, have, they no longer have a voice. All they have is only desperate actions. That's all they get. So you also learn that the mocking and the beating of Jesus by the Sanhedrin and the guard was quickly followed by Peter's denial. Remember that? Peter says, nah, not me. So Peter, like all of us, he stood in the courtyard. He denied Jesus. And the denial was then joined by the crowds of Jerusalem. Crucify him, they screamed. So now we see the rejection and the denial completed as the Roman soldiers mimic the Jewish religious hierarchy. They spit on Jesus. They beat him just as their opposite counterparts, the Sanhedrin, did. I don't know if you saw that before, but wow. The rejection of the Son of God is complete. And notice what Mark has done. From the Jewish high priests, all the way to the very top of the Jewish hierarchy, to the Roman soldiers, Jesus' closest friends, even Peter, the crowds, common people, they all gather together in Jerusalem, and all of them reject Jesus, every one of them. Mark has symbolically done something here really amazing. He's pulled, he's united the world and hated enemies. They're arm in arm. They reject, they mock, they deny the Son of God. So what does this mean for us? What's it got to do with me? Why do we study the crucifixion? So first of all, we see that the disturbing reality is, first, that we are a part of this wicked, united people. We're a part of this. That's why we study it, to recognize this. Our sin, our rebellion, our selfishness give us no choice but to be included in the hideous group. We can't escape that reality. Isaiah, when you go to Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah writes, Six, 700 years before Jesus is even born, God speaks through Isaiah. This is what God says. He says, he was despised and rejected by people, one who experienced pain. He was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised, and we, he says, considered him insignificant. If any of us believe that it was the Jews who crucified Jesus, then we're terribly misled. That's not who crucified Jesus. Mark makes it clear that all mankind drove Jesus to the, to the cross. It was all of us. And the amazing reality is that as true as this is, he went willingly as a part of his father's way to fulfill justice and extend mercy to creation, his creation. We denied him, we beat him, we spit on him, and he suffered the full weight of the wrath of God. So let's, let's move on. Let's, let's talk about the suffering servant. In verse 21, the soldiers forced a passerby to carry his cross. Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. So lots of people did this. Lots of people came from outside of Jerusalem. So he's just one of these guys, a regular guy. So suddenly enters this unknown regular guy, common guy. He's pushed to center stage. He's Jewish. He's there to celebrate Passover on his way into Jerusalem, right? He's hurrying along. He's trying to get there before sundown. He's trying to get all these preparations. Remember the guys before, they go to Jesus and they're like, hey, you know, where do you want us to make preparations for Passover? It's coming. We don't got much time. That was in chapter 14. We just went through that just a little bit. Right? We got stuff to do, and you can't just pull this like this. You know, We didn't make any reservations. What do you want us to do? And Jesus says, I already got it done. Just go meet this guy. He's got it all taken care of. 
Remember that? So that's all Simon's do. He's, he's got to do the same exact stuff. He's got a grocery list. He's got a supply list. It's all got to be completed before sundown. So he's at the city, city gates. He finds himself in the midst, midst of crushing people and crowds, and there's animals and everything. It's just a big old hoopla going on right here. And suddenly, a disturbance ahead gives way to, you know, maybe a little clearing. Simon looks around, wondering if he's going to make it in on time. His eyes, all of a sudden, fall on an imposing Roman centurion. This is what happens. And the guy's pointing at him. And then Simon understands in front of him is a beaten and bloodied man. He's stumbling. He's falling. All his raw wounds, you know, his back is just ripped to shreds. He's fallen down in the dirt, the dry dirt of the road. It's all mixing up. In a fury, Simon is forced to pick up this large wooden beam, which this condemned and dying man can no longer carry. Confused, probably scared. This is what's going through his head. He obeys. He does what he's told because you don't just say no to a Roman soldier. So he picks up the beam. I mean, man, it's, it's an unbelievable scene. Right here, Mark points all this out. And there's a reason. I don't know how long it was, but I don't, it, I, it would be really cool to know when Simon began to understand exactly what was happening. Jesus invaded his life on that day. That's significant. Yeah, I, I would make a note of that. I would underline that. Jesus invaded Simon's life right then in that moment. We're going to come back to that. But Mark, he zooms in on this scene. It's like he takes a, uh, he's got a zoom lens. He's just right here on this scene. And, and like I said, there's a, there's a reason regular guy tells us his name, gives us the names of his kids, his sons, his two sons, so that there's no doubt as to who this guy is. It's a fascinating detail. We're going to get to it. But the most amazing thing about these verses, and we just read those verses right there, is the description of the actual crucifixion. Now, you got to think about this, OK? So we know lots about the crucifixion. But Mark uses just four words in English. In Greek, he uses three words, two if you take out the word and. That's all he uses. He gives the actual crucifixion of Jesus only two words. And I think it's because he's trying to tell us something. The crucifixion itself, it's horrific. It's awful. But it's not the core of what Mark wants to tell us or communicate. He, he's focusing on the activities occurring around the crucifixion. And if you're not careful, you'll just breeze by that. Now, I don't want to breeze by that part. And I don't want to breeze past the reality of this form of capital punishment, because that's what it is. I want to put up for you an excerpt of what happened to Jesus while he was on the cross, OK? I just want to read it here really quick. And I want you to zoom in this, because this is a big deal. As the arms fatigue, this is while Jesus is hanging there on the cross. He's been nailed to the cross. Great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them into deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward. 
Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Hours of relentless or limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain deep in the, ch in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills up with serum and begins to compress the heart. Tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp in small gulps of air. It's, it's unbearable, actually. And I, I could have put up so much more. It's as difficult for me to read to you now as it was for me to read the first time, but the amazing thing is Mark only gives us two words. The actual crucifixion, it's like a sidebar. It's like a footnote in the story. And I think that this is because we are to be struck not by the horrific reality of the act of the crucifixion, but instead by the fact that the Son of God, Jesus, willingly took it all on. He willingly went through this experience the utter depths of shame and abuse and pain in order to take the wrath that each one of us deserved. This is why we study it. This is why we take a look at it. This is why we remember it. Jesus was the suffering servant. He, he took it all. Physically, he took the pain, the pain and the abuse that defies description. Mentally, he took the shame and the embarrassment and the ridicule and the mocking of mankind. Have you, have you ever felt like, you, you know, have you ever been embarrassed? Have you ever been shamed? Have you ever been in pain? This, the creator submitted to utter humiliation from the created. And Mark tells us that the soldiers rolled dice to determine who would get Jesus' clothes. I mean, wow. That's... that's that's so humiliating. Roman soldiers flippantly divided up the clothes of the perfect suffering servant, Messiah, Son of God, Jesus. I mean, that, that's, that's astonishing to me. Spiritually, he underwent the ultimate horror, complete rejection by his father, the Lord of Lord turns his back on his son because sin can't be in his presence. If that doesn't shake you to your core and wake you up a little bit, why do we study and consider the crucifixion? Because he was the perfect suffering servant. In the end, Mark leaves no doubt in our minds as to the magnitude of agony undergone by Jesus. Beginning to end, he suffered in every single way. It was unspeakable agony that he could have escaped from. He absolutely could have escaped from it, but he endured it for you and for me. That's why we study it. That's why we consider it. That's why we remember it. Let's, let's keep going. Look at verse 25. Because the completion of judgment all comes together. It's 9 o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. 
The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And they crucified two outlaws with him, one on his right and one on his left. And then those who passed by defamed and shaking their hands, saying, you know, ah, you know, oh my gosh. And then the same way the chief priests, they come back around. They've done this before. They come back around and they do it again. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now that we can see and believe. So now Mark brings everything full circle to Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. He takes us back there. You see that the abuse of the trial continues unabated even now that Jesus is on the cross. He's hanging on the cross and they're doing this. <laughs> so you re-enter, you re-enter the scene now with the chief priests and the teachers of the law, these leaders of Israel observed, they've astonished, they, 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 they've observed these astonishing series of events. And the fact of the matter is, despite their trial and conviction of Jesus, they still have a chance to save themselves, by the way, and their people. Jesus has made it clear that the temple destruction is imminent. It's all going to be destroyed. See, that's what he told us all. That's what he told his guys. That's what he told them. He gave them every clue that the physical temple was no longer going to be the dwelling place of God. That's not what's going to happen on earth. And that it was doomed because of Israel's sin and rebellion. But Jesus was willing to become the temple and take on that destruction himself. Destroy this temple, he says, and I will raise it up again in three days. So the temple... It had become this epicenter of, of activity for a future armed rebellion in the Sanhedrin rather than walk in humility and service to the Lord and be a light to the, all the other nations and lead Israel to be a light to all the, uh, all the nations. They take on the same sort of attitude and actions of their oppressors, the Romans, Their armed rebellion had replaced fear of the Lord. So they don't fear the Lord anymore. Their passion for throwing off Rome, it replaced their passion for God. They're all about control, power, influence. Um, those are their gods. And, and by the way, if, if just in that statement right there, you can't see yourself, you're missing it too. Because we're all about power, control, and influence. Those are our gods. We like to know. We like to be in control. Do you like to be in control? I like to be in control. I like to know what's happening. I like to know what's going to happen. I like it to be planned. I don't really like to shoot from the hip. I want to know. I, 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 I want it to be safe. I want, it, I want to know. Do you like going somewhere where you're going to have to engage, but you don't know anybody? Why? We like to be in control. I don't like to be out of my element. We, we, th this is us as well. This is us. You can't deny it. And now the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they got a choice. They have a final opportunity to recognize their sin, to recognize the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. And for the first time since the trial, the Jewish religious establishment has a voice again. Mark gives them a voice now. They have a voice. And what do they do with it? Mark tells us they mock. They mock. And in the same way as the passers-by, they mock. And their doom is sealed. The true temple has been destroyed to be raised up on the third day. The true temple, the perfect, the complete sacrifice 
is doing his work, taking on the death and destruction promised to chosen but rebellious people, and they're missing it. And within a generation, this is what happens. Within a generation, what God says is going to happen comes true, and Jerusalem is sacked. The temple is destroyed in AD 70 under the leadership of Emperor Titus. It all happens. The ones who should have recognized Messiah are the ones who mock the most. And it all happens. God, said, God does what he says he's going to do. So now as the suffering, suffering servant completes his sacrifice, Mark brings us back full circle to complete the judgment. The scene is moved from the corrupt court of the Sanhedrin, you know, back in chapter 14. And it's moved now and where they mock the Son of God. Now it's moved to the courtroom of heaven where they plead guilty by mocking him again. And so Mark is brilliant. He bookends these scenes and, uh, with their mockery. And Mark shows us the completion of judgment on the Jewish religious hierarchy, hierarchy. And now it's easy to summarize. He shows us why it had to happen this way. God takes, this is, this is crazy. Think about this, all right? And just in summary, think about this. God takes this moment and he makes this the center point in history. He uses the way of our crucifixion of Messiah. And I see the way, the, the, words, uh, the word our, we crucified Messiah. He takes the way of our crucifixion of the Messiah to become the way that our sins are righteously and justly dealt with. Think of that. There is not one, one of us here who left to our own selves wouldn't reject the living one who created us. Our sin runs so deep. Our selfishness runs so pervasive. Our rebelliousness is so thorough that no earthly way can save us. There's no way we can save ourselves. So why did the crucifixion have to happen? We all, because of God's mercy, had to be gathered together to participate in this horrific drama to complete the rejection. Jesus, the perfect suffering servant, became the presence of God on earth. He became the temple of God and took away the fate of all the, took away the fate of the physical temple on himself in order to save all the inhabitants, all of mankind. He took on our fate and we're left with the choice to mock or fall on our knees in humility. In the crucifixion, perfect and complete justice was rendered on our behalf. So without it, you know, why do, why do we remember? Why do we study it? Why do we recognize it? Why do we make a big deal of it? Without it, there's no justice. Without it, there's no mercy. Without it, there's no victory. Without it, there's no life. Without it, there's no forgiveness. The cross, the ultimate symbol of helplessness and shame, look what happens. It becomes a symbol of victory over Satan. So when we built this church, there's a reason why. We put that cross out there. 
and we made it as tall as we legally could make it, 27 feet tall, and as big as an imposing as we could make it because it reminds us, it represents victory over Satan. And if you notice, Jesus isn't hanging on that cross. It's empty. Now, I want to take you back to this guy, Simon. Can't skip over this guy. Simon in his world, because there's some reasons why. Remember, Jesus is beaten and he's bloodied. And he invades Simon's world. Remember how busy Simon was and how he was trying to just get to the, you know, get in there and get all, everything all done to celebrate Passover? Jesus is too weak to do what the convicted had to do is carry their cross. Jesus wouldn't have made it. He'd already endured far more than, you know, what it would take to kill most, most of us, all right? But there's more to do. And rather than call down a legion of angels to rescue him, he doesn't do that. He could have done that. That's what he could have done. He pressed on this suffering servant. And in the midst of all of it, he invades Simon's life. Now catch this. Evidence suggests, and I'm talking about the scripture in the Bible, the New Testament, that Simon is a believer. His sons are specifically mentioned by both Mark and Matthew actually mentions them as well, right? And Paul greets Rufus by name, in his letter to the Romans, Mark leaves no doubt as to exactly which Simon this is, the Simon, the one they all knew. They all know this guy. He's one of us. Paul points it out too. So I think, this is what I think, Simon represents all kinds of things, but I think he represents us too. Simon is us. Can you see how that happens? as you're hurrying around, as you're busy with all kinds of concerns, all kinds of things to do, as you've got all kinds of stuff going on in your life, and how Jesus inconveniently invades your life. You're just trying to get to Passover. You've got all, these stuff, all this stuff to do, and then this happens. And Jesus wants you to do what? You've got to carry what? And people are saying, look, you need to, you know, help out on Sunday morning or you got to put on a name tag or you got to, you know, are you kidding me? <laughs> or I ask you to come up here on stage and tell your story or, or you know, I, has Jesus been in, inconvenient? Has he messed up your plans? Has he invaded your life like that? Has he done any of that to you? Look what he, look what he does here. God in his mercy and grace, he pulls us aside and makes us a part of this great drama, whether we like it or not. He does it. And in doing this, he covers us in his complete justice because we're gathered around to condemn the son of God. That's who we are. That's what we do. That's what we've done. But he responds by being the perfect suffering servant, becoming the lamb, the lamb led to slaughter to pay the price for our sins. I put Jesus on the cross. You put Jesus on the cross. You cannot get away from that. 
You're denying the truth if you do. All right, now I said, notice that cross out there. Jesus is not on it. There's no symbol of him on it. It's empty. And it, it's supposed to be that way because it is empty. But what held him on the cross? Have you thought about that? Was it the nails that held him on the cross? See, we needed Jesus to fight. Fight the battle against Satan. To fight the battle against sin. To fight the battle against death. The battle he fought and won on the cross. We needed him to fight. We need to believe that Jesus died the death of a rebel on behalf of rebels, us who rebelled against God. What kept Jesus on the cross? It wasn't the nails. It was love that kept him on the cross. It's love for you and I. Listen, rising from within Jesus is love for us so intense and so unbelievably beautiful that it overpowered anything begging him to leave and he could have left. He wanted to gather you and to bring you to God and enfold you into his temple. So Jesus found the temptation to leave the cross resistible because he finds us irresistible. He stayed on the cross for us. (laughs) He stayed on the cross for you and he stayed on the cross for me. That is why we study it. That's why we remember it. That's why we dramatically sing about it. Focus on it, worship it, and build 27-foot steel memorials filled with rocks. Do you know that that thing is 27 feet tall? That cross is 27 feet tall, and that the foundation of it is 12 feet deep and four feet wide, solid concrete and steel, because it's so heavy and it's so big and nobody wants it to tip over. It's imposing for a reason. So that you can no doubt when you walk out there, you go, oh my gosh, this church is all about obviously that. When we were at Empire High School, we had a great donut machine that everybody would say, you guys are the church with a donut machine. Those donuts are awesome. I mean, everybody knows we got a donut machine, trust me. But you know what they know now? Are you the church with that big cross out front? I love it when people say that. I say, yes. Yes, we are. That's Vail Christian Church. Right out front is the symbol of victory over Satan. Victory over Satan. That's it. Bow your head with me. Thank you, Lord God, for sending your son, Jesus, to take our place, our selfish, rebellious, mocking, sinful place. Thank you, Lord God, that you did that. Thank you, Lord God. I don't know why. I can't fathom it. That your son, Jesus, resisted coming off the cross He resisted all of that because we were irresistible. Thank you. 
don't deserve it. But because we know all this, God, help us now to live in a way to where we can represent and we can carry out these doors, this message of hope and peace and love and transformation, God, help us to carry it in a worthy manner now. Because we know, because we know it kept you on the cross what held you there. And it wasn't nails. So we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So listen, there's a bunch of these in your seat. So take a bunch of these and give them away. Take a newsletter with you. Just take it and find somebody to give it. Give it to. Invite somebody back next week to hear the greatest story ever told and the reason why Jesus isn't on that cross anymore. It's going to be great. We'll see you next week, Resurrection Sunday. Have a great day.